Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. I would like for you to look with me at Luke chapter 10. And uh, we're looking at verses 21 to 24 today. 21 will be the main text, verse 21. And so uh, find your place there in Luke 10. Would you look with me at verse 21? Let me read God's word and then we will pray. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him, and he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see these things, that ye see. For I tell you, that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. In verse 21 there, we see only two places in Scripture, only the second place, I should say, the second place of Scripture where we find the Lord Jesus rejoicing. That does not mean that our Savior never rejoiced, but we see two specific texts where he was rejoicing. And we're talking today about the joy of Christ, the joy of Jesus, all right? And so let's, let's bow in prayer uh, together one more time before the message. Father, we, we do thank you for our Savior. We thank you that he uh, died, was buried, and rose again. Uh, we thank you that not only did he do that, but he lived for us sinlessly on our behalf so that we might be reconciled back to you, Father. And so as we consider this morning in the incarnation, what are the emotions of Christ? How, are, how, how, how do we understand them? How do they impact and um, how do they affect the way that we live? Lord, help us to have wisdom. Grant us the grace now of the Spirit of God to teach us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we, by the way, somebody brought me my glasses and so you can, there's a hero in here today. Uh, you can you can rejoice uh, with Jesus. Last week we were talking about the the emotions of Christ and to understand how we think of them often, we considered one of the most famous Christmas carols, "Away in the Manger," where we find words like these: "The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes." We have this idea that the incarnate Son of God was totally emotionless or absolutely, if you will, nothing like us. Nothing like us. And can I just say this morning that if your view of Jesus is that he is absolutely in no way anything like you and me, then then you today find this season and the truth of Christmas to be hopeless. Because the joy that we have in understanding this passage and what God has done in Christ is that 
the Son of God was made man like us. But what we were reminded last week of was that not only is Jesus, who is truly God, truly man, wrapped in one divine person, not only is that who he is and so much so beyond our understanding, but the call last week and the call today even is that you and I have to submit at some point to the mystery of the God-man, the mystery, the lack of full understanding of who Christ is. And some just are not willing to do that. Some in this, in this day and in our worldview of, of rationalism and materialism, we're just not willing to confess and admit the supernatural mystery that is the incarnation. But the incarnation forces you to answer a question. It forces you to answer a question that I hope today will unsettle you a little bit. And that question is this. Who is your God? Who is your God? Is your God the God as revealed of Scripture or is God in your mind your own rational thinking? And what makes sense to you? And so the question, who is your God, is appropriate at Christmas. Jeremiah 32, the prophet said this, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Now, when I study and read the Bible, which I do, it's part of my occupation, my job to study Scripture, I often find myself saying, this is too difficult for me to grasp. It seems so impossible. And I'm reminded that even Mary even Mary thought that. When Luke 1, we find these words, and then Mary said unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? How is this even possible? This mystery of the incarnate Son of God, this, this person who is divine, truly God, and truly man, how is this possible? To which the angel reminded her, in Luke 1.37, for with God nothing shall be impossible. See, the incarnation, the mystery of who God is in Christ is maybe beyond our human scope, but you, if you believe in God, you have to confess that anything is possible with God. Anything. And so we come to Scripture as people with faith. And I think the topic of emotions of Jesus, what we don't understand on this topic is okay. It's okay if it doesn't always make sense to us. I think the, the best way for us to grasp this in simplicity, Christian, is to understand that Jesus' emotions are in perfect accordance with the Spirit's work. Jesus' emotions are in perfect accordance with the Spirit's work. The Spirit's work Meaning in his life, Jesus lives in total obedience to the Father's will and in total dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so the emotions of Jesus, when we study them, when we examine them, when we consider them, they reveal to you and me whether or not our emotions are surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God or not. We, we had to face that fact last week. That's a, hard, that's a hard pill for some of us to swallow. It's a hard reality to to face is, are our emotions in submission to the Spirit of God? 
And so with that as a little bit of a backdrop, today we turn our attention to Jesus' emotion of joy. Next week we consider anger, the anger of Jesus. But today, joy. There's a, 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 an interesting paradox in our world, right? This time of year is considered to be the most wonderful time of year, right? But in the midst of this, there's an overwhelming amount of misery. The most wonderful time of year is the most stressful time of year for many. You find yourself running, you're trying to, you're trying to get to parties and events and gatherings, and you're trying to buy gifts you're trying to, to, to figure out how much is left in your budget and you still, you're looking at your list, you're looking at your money and you're going, these things aren't matching. There's a stress that comes at Christmas. Now, it's as if you and I have learned to be okay when the camera is on, and, but meanwhile, we're living these simultaneously angry, depressed, discouraged miserable lives and we tend to be unaware of it until the moment passes and we say wow there's a real lack of joy here the reality is that on a day like today we rejoice in Christmas we enjoy this time of year but we are aware that the gladness that you and I might feel could be gone in just a few moments And we ask ourselves a question, is there a kind of joy and gladness that is to be available at all times? Is there a kind of joy that can be available even when I don't feel joyful? What, what is the joy that is available to the Christian today in the midst of, of this, the stress and the, and the pressure and the frustration of our season, of our lives, the burdens that we bear, the valleys that we walk through, is there a real joy that is available all the time? And as is often the case, as often is the case, people tend to look at Christianity as kind of a killjoy. And that's because our view of gladness and joy is, is based off of doing whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. I found, I told you, I've been giving myself the last couple of years to the, the topic of emotional health for my own need and my own well-being. And I, I found myself introduced to a book by a guy named Scott Spencer. He wrote a book called The Passions of Christ. You can see passions as the emotions of Christ. He asked some really interesting questions. He said, did Jesus feel good about himself? Did Jesus feel good about his career? Did, did he have a good time and know how to enjoy himself? Did Jesus smile and laugh? Was he pleasant? Was he a happy guy to be around? Spencer goes on to say that if these questions seem odd to us about the gospel portraits of Jesus, it's because they should. These kinds of questions are much more appropriate to modern psychological analysis, he says, and personality inventories than they would be to an ancient gospel biography. Because the, the, the gospel biographies are serious writings about the life, death, the life and the death of God's Son, confronting 
the most critical matters of life and death on earth. They are theological biographies about a selfless hero who gives himself wholly for others' salvation and restoration. See, here's what you need to remember about Jesus. He's no party animal, despite his frequent table fellowship. He's no happy-go-lucky wanderer, despite his bare-bones itinerant mission. Jesus is no pre—he's no self-occupied navel-gazer, constantly monitoring his feelings and moods and vital signs and hours of sleep. There's no Fitbit, no Apple Watch. He's never described as smiling or laughing, but neither is anyone else in the Gospels. Jesus, Spencer says, Jesus' defining hour is not happy hour, but the hour of trial, suffering, and death on behalf of a broken world. Nevertheless, while Jesus scarcely exemplifies a frivolous, fun-loving, or sunny disposition, he is by no means joyless. And of course, it all depends on how we interpret the emotion of joy in distinction from other pleasant feelings. That's a good question. How do we interpret the emotion of joy? That's the question in front of us, actually, when we examine the life of Jesus. Actually, if you want to go further, as you examine your own life, as you look yourself in the mirror, you have to answer the question of will you interpret joy through the lens of Scripture or will you interpret joy through the lens of circumstance? The account that we read in Luke 10 is about the emotion of joy, and we're going to see this quickly today. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna think about it like this in four categories, all right? Four categories that you have in your handout. What Jesus is rejoicing is, how Jesus expressed rejoicing, why Jesus rejoiced, and then in conclusion, how we can rejoice like Jesus. Let's start with that first one, what Jesus rejoicing is. I want you to notice there, I told you verse 21 is our key verse this morning. We're going to dissect it for the first three parts of the message. What Jesus rejoicing is, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. The word rejoiced here means to be exceedingly glad or to exult. To be exceedingly glad or to exult. When considering Jesus' emotion of joy, this passage is more astounding than you and I give it credit. Think about it like this. Jesus, who is the eternal God incarnate, rejoices. He rejoices. He, he who knows the Father who came from heaven rejoices. We often rejoice based on gifts, money, relationships, things we have. And it's hard for us to imagine someone like Jesus being caused to rejoice. I mean, how do you make someone glad who has everything? How do you make someone rejoice who knows everything and even created everything? See, that rubs exactly opposite of how we think rejoice. But Jesus' joy was not temporarily fleeting, event-based joy. Notice the phrase there in verse 21 that I read. 
Jesus rejoiced in spirit. His rejoicing was a divine rejoicing, provoked by the Holy Spirit. Provoked by the Holy Spirit. And this phrase tells us two important things about this emotion of joy. First, Jesus was perfectly and fully endowed with the Holy Spirit. There was no part of Jesus' humanity that was not submitted to the will, the work, and the control of the Holy Spirit. Jesus possessed the fruit of the Spirit perfectly in his own human spirit. Secondly, this phrase tells us something about the Holy Spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit is the spirit of rejoicing. He's the spirit of joy. He brings about the rejoicing of Christ. And we know this from Galatians 5 because Paul said that the second fruit of the Spirit, the first one being love, the second is joy. That means the Christian in whom the Spirit of God is controlling and the Spirit of God is growing spiritual fruit is going to exemplify joy. B.B. Warfield in his essay that I told you about last week, The Emotional Life of Christ, he said this, he said, joy he had, speaking of Jesus, but it was not the shallow joy of mere pagan delight in living, nor the delusive joy of a hope destined to failure, but the deep exaltation of a conqueror setting captives free. The joy of Jesus was the joy of a conqueror setting captives free. You'll see that more in a moment. The rejoicing of Jesus is the kind of rejoicing for which we should strive. That should be the striving of our life. And it only happens by the Holy Spirit. Only happens by the Holy Spirit because He is the only source for this kind of joy. And that means that this kind of rejoicing that is seen here in Christ is not produced. It is not produced by giving control of your life to your career, to a spouse, to your children, to your wallet, to social media accounts, to sexual pleasure. The joy that is found here is only given when we give control of our life to the Holy Spirit. And all these th people and things may bring about temporary happiness, but they will not produce an eternal joy. They will not. We won't find joy, my friends, anywhere other than in the Lord. And it will not come by any other means than His Holy Spirit. And so you have to decide today, you have to decide whether you will have the kind of rejoicing that comes by the Holy Spirit. It's only, it's only produced in the life of a Christian who has yielded to the Spirit's word, to the Spirit's control. There's no other source. Listen, there is no other source. And the rejoicing that we see of Jesus here is a divine rejoicing. But how Jesus expressed this rejoicing is actually seen in the passage as well. Look at verse 21. Again, let me read that line. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Let me, let me stop there, and, and I want you to, to track with me. This tells us something about the nature of true God-centered joy. The, the, the nature of true joy is that it leads to impromptu, impromptu 
thanksgiving to the Father. Did you see that in the text? Jesus rejoiced and then said, I thank thee, O Father. True joy is expressed in Father-centered, in God the Father-centered gratitude. The Holy Spirit of God warms the affections within the heart of a Christian, and that Christian can only do one thing in response to that kind of spirit working. The Christian can only then give gratitude to the Father. You can trace your joy backwards. We came out of that Thanksgiving season, but for the Christian, we should never have left it. We shouldn't have actually needed it to start. Because the joy that is in us by the Spirit of God will come out in gratitude. The object of Jesus' gratitude is seen here. It is the the Father. The Father. The Lord of heaven and earth. Who is this Father? Well, he He is the Father God and He is the sovereign ruler. There's no greater power in this world than the Father. There's no greater power. And so Jesus expressing this kind of worshipful thanksgiving that God deserves from all of his creatures, that's what's happening. Yet the, hear me, the unfortunate plight of mankind is that you and I are sinfully ungrateful. We're just sinfully ungrateful. We don't recognize God as God. And so the human condition spelled out in Romans chapter 1 is that they glorified God they, they glorified God not as God, neither were thankful. This is the human condition left to sinfulness, is that we're a very presumptuous people who are not grateful. Always finding somewhere to complain. Always finding a good reason, we think, to gripe. Right? It's just, tell you what, I've earned the right to be negative today. Should have seen what I dealt with at work. A God-centered people who want to walk in Holy Spirit-filled joy will look like what we see with Christ here, the gratitude to the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth. But why? Why did Jesus rejoice? This is kind of like the million-dollar question here. Why did he rejoice? Look at verse 21 again. Let's start from the top. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. The rejoicing that brought about, that was, that, that was brought about by God's good revelation is what Jesus talks about here. And Jesus states, that God had hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed these things. Whatever these things are, he's revealed them unto babes. And so we have to ask, what are the things that have been revealed and who are the babes? Well, verses 17 to 20, which we did not read, help answer these things and the question of who are the babes. Look at verse 17 with me. You have it there in your handout. It's also on the screen or in your Bible. And the 70 returned again 
with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, let me just give you a little bit of quick context here. Jesus had sent the disciples of these 70 out to do a a short-term mission work. They came back rejoicing, verse 17 said. They returned again with joy because they had been given power over the powers of darkness. And so we find two reasons for rejoicing. The first one is what I want to call the lesser reason, verse 17 and 19, where we see that the the, the 70 had power over uh, the, 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 the domination over the satanic kingdom. That's what they show here, that, that, they, that they had been given authority in the name of Christ. And this tells us something about Jesus, and that, that, is, that, he is the, that this is the kingdom of God manifested in Christ, that he has come to destroy the works of Satan. You might say, but that's the lesser reason? That seems to be a great reason because Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of Satan. Didn't he? Yes. And it seems, it seems evidence here by the, the joy of the 70 that they had power over these dark, demonic spirits. And it matters because in chapter 9 and verse 39 through 42 there, again, you have it. You can see that the disciples did not have power. There was a moment when somebody came and said, can you help my son? And they could not cast out the demon. Well, now in chapter 10, now they can cast out these demons. And so these guys in the 70, they return rejoicing. And Jesus is, 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 is seeing their joy. But this was not the primary re- reason for rejoicing. It wasn't the main reason Jesus rejoiced. Look at verse 20. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Do you get the point of this where Jesus is beginning to express joy? He's expressing now to the Father the joy that the disciples are now going to understand, not that they have power over the demonic forces of darkness which is a reason for rejoicing but Jesus is joying now because these guys are going to rejoice that their names are written in heaven there's a greater rejoicing today that is available and Jesus is rejoicing that they are rejoicing that their names are written in heaven not only are they rejoicing that the name of Jesus is authoritative over darkness and the powers of darkness but Jesus says to them Rejoice that your names are known. When you read the Bible, you you should ask the why question often. Why do our names need to be written in heaven? I was wrestling with that this week. I am a paper and pen guy. You can see I love writing everything down. I live by a list every day of my life. And I do so because if I do not write it down, I will forget it. And so I thought, 
Is it possible that our names are written in heaven so that God does not forget Dustin Moore? Is that what this is about? It's that he might forget me and you. And by the way, wouldn't that be a tragedy if he did? But that's not what the point is. It's about where the names are written. It means that the people who were once not in a relationship with God are now known of God. These people are now saved and in his kingdom and their names are settled, written down in heaven. To be known in this way with the Father through Jesus is not merely knowing about God. It is God knowing you. In like manner, there's an awe that should overwhelm us to consider that God the Father knows us. We who were once estranged from him, the Father knows us and he knows us through Christ through our connection to Christ, those who, are know, who know the Son are known by the Father. And that means, Christian, if you know Jesus today, that you know the Father today, and the Spirit of God indwells you today, and you are no longer estranged from the Father because of the Son. And Jesus delights the, in the fact, He rejoices in the fact that you know that your name is written in heaven. That's the promise of joy. Galatians 4 says, Wherefore, thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So why is Jesus rejoicing? He's rejoicing because his followers know that their names are written in heaven. Here was my thought applicationally on that this week. Christian, it means that my knowing, my assurance of my salvation is a means of joy in Christ. Think about that, that Christ joys in your assurance. He, he joys, He rejoices in you being known of God. I told you only two times in Scripture where Jesus, it's expressed that Christ rejoiced. One of them is right here. The second one may be odd to you, but it's on the way, on the way to suffering. It's on the way for Jesus to suffer. Isn't that contrary to how you and I think of joy? See, the joy of Jesus is so unlike ours. So let's consider this. How do we rejoice like Jesus? Number one, in conclusion, number one, we have access to Christ's joy fulfilled in us. We have access to Christ's joy fulfilled in us. Now, if you're sitting here and you're going, I, I want that. I, I, I long for that kind of a joy. Well, Jesus gives us, he gives us the recipe. He gives us the recipe for this joy. Look at John 17 and look at verse 13. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy 
fulfilled in themselves. I've given them thy word, and the word and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou would take it, should take us them out of the world, but that, that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. But there in verse 13, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This, hear me, this was the prayer and desire of the incarnate Christ. His prayer is that you and I would have His joy fulfilled in us. That His followers would share in His life and His peace, but also His joy. That His followers would, would, would understand His coming to the earth was, yes, a moment of joy as the angels sang, and they rejoiced. And they say, we bring you good tidings of great joy. That, yes, this is about joy. It's a time of joy. It's a season of joy. But that Christians don't walk out of this season joyless, but they live with this joy. The Savior who taught and healed and ministered, He did all of this leading to a great occasion for our joy. And it's the only way that we can share His joy. He, he can share His joy with us. The only way for Him to share His joy with us. It's the only way that we can have the emotion of joy like Christ is for, listen, let me say it very simply, it's for your name to be written in heaven. It's not much more complicated than that. It's that you enter into a saving relationship through Christ with God. You can chase joy and chase joy and chase joy by every possible means, but there is no joy apart from being known by God in salvation. There is none. Eternal joy, secondly, is only by a relationship with God the Father. Jesus Jesus' path to joy, listen, this is what you have to understand, and this seems so hard for people to grasp. While we rejoice in the Christmas season, Jesus wasn't just born to be born. He wasn't just born to be born. He literally was born to die. And the book of Hebrews tells us that there was a joy that was set before Jesus. There was a joy set before Him to endure the cross. That the, the cross is the means of our joy, not the manger. The manger leads to the, the cross, but it is the cross in which we look at the Son of God in our place, dying for our sins, that enables us to now have joy. Because if Jesus is just a good person born, there is no joy. There's just religion. If Jesus was just a good teacher, but there was no cross, then all you have now is a ladder to climb to God. But if Jesus is the Savior of the world, now you don't need a ladder and you don't need a religion. You have a Savior. And the Savior gives joy. You see on the cross... Jesus was torn apart so that we could be united with the Father. 
The possibility of our eternal rejoicing is because of the reality of Jesus' temporary suffering. We are accepted of God because he was rejected. We are known by God because Jesus was estranged on the cross. And that means this. That means that there is a harsh reality when it comes to the Christian message. And that is there are two, there are only two kinds of people. Those that are known by God and those that are estranged to God. There's only two kinds of people. Those who are known by God and those who are estranged from God because they have not come to Christ for salvation. And so for us, Christian, let me just say to you, let me take it further. Let me tell you what the promise of the gospel is. The promise of the gospel is not just that you will have and can have joy today. The promise of the gospel is that you can have joy eternally. Eternally. That means there will never be a moment in your life, there should never be a moment that is not ruled by joy. Why? Things are bad. I understand. Your names are written in heaven. My health is poor. I'm so sorry. Rejoice because your name is written in heaven. I'm I'm going through a difficult season, and and I understand in in some ways I've been in difficult seasons too, but here's here's what we promised, that even in all of this, there can still be a joy because names are written in heaven. Have you ever met someone who is in the darkest valley? Let's just say the valley of death of a loved one. Have you ever been talking to someone, a Christian, when they knew, when they knew that they would never see their loved one again on this side of eternity? And they would say something like this I just rejoice that heaven is real. I rejoice that my loved one is safe with God. What is that? That is the joy of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. And so for the Christian today, maybe you say, I, I, I feel joyless. I'll just, I'll confess this to you. There was a season for me that was a couple years long that was brutal where I'm not sure I could grab a hold of what joy was in my life. I, I, get, I get that maybe you're wrestling with that. I understand. This series, this message, these messages, in many cases from a pastoral heart, flow out of that season. So I do not stand up here and tell you, come on, get with it, have joy. What I will tell you is that joy is available. It's available. How do we find it in the muddiness, in the, in the difficulty of life? Jesus actually tells us. And I know you're about to be very underwhelmed and I'm okay with that because it's scripture. It's simple. And it's the third point of conclusion. Abide in your joy. You say, why do you say that? Where does that point come from? Well, it actually comes from Jesus in John 15 when he says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. 
What are these things? They were John 15, 1 through 10. And for time today, I won't take you to it, but you should read it. Your joy, His joy, can remain in you. Even in, even in all the problems, even in all the pain, even in all that's going on, even in the stress and the pressure and the anxiety of this season, you can have joy abiding in your King. Abiding in your King. Let me be, let me be very pointed to the Christian this morning. And I say, I tread carefully here, but I want you to, and you need to hear what is true, even if it stings a little bit. A joyless Christian is a Christian not abiding in Christ. That's, 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 that's the fact. A joyless Christian is a Christian not abiding in Christ. The evidence of our Christian walk will be found in our joy. And if you're here today, like I have been in church myself many times over 41 years, and I have been so absent of joy, let me just remind you this. Your life betrays who is your king. It betrays who is your king. If you have given control to, of your joy to anyone or anything in this life, you have made that person your king. There is only one king. There is only one person who should have the authority to rule over your joy, and that is King Jesus. On the other hand, to the Christians in the room, those who lead, you have authority, you have influence. Whom are you calling others to submit? To whom? To whom are you calling others to submit today? Christians in every sphere of life, call people, parents, call your children, husbands, wives, call one another, pastors, teachers, Awana leaders, call people to submit to Jesus. In doing so, in doing so, we call them to not just say his name, but to live under his rule. To live under his rule. It's not about, life is not about careers and colleges and monies, monies and bank accounts and relationships. It's not just about that. That all has its place and fits into the puzzle, but that is not what rules our joy. Is your home joyless today? Is your marriage joyless? How do we, how do we help one another in our joy? We call one another to submit to King Jesus. And the fact is, you can have joy today. Hear me. You can have joy. If all you do today is find, try to find joy in, in, in abiding in Christ, but you've never came to Christ in faith, you're skipping the step. The first step to your eternal joy is to recognize I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. For the Christian, your step in joy is submission, abiding in Christ. The other day we were sitting on the couch, sitting on the couch and my son was sitting there next to me and I think it was a commercial or something we were watching 
some sports and it was a commercial or something that was on and it was playing that those words it's the most wonderful time of the year like you're walking into Macy's or something and my son looked at me and just said dad why is this the most wonderful time of year and I said good question you ain't got no gifts so I don't know um And I, I think, if I recall honestly, I said to him, I don't really know where that came from. And I, was, I think, if, again, if I'm honest, I was in a little bit of a dismissive dad posture in that moment. Like, I don't know what that, I don't know. I'm not answering your question. I don't know. Here's the reality of it, though. This is what I think. I think God made us to be joy seekers. God made you to seek after joy. And we so badly want it that we'll do anything to find it. And so Christmas becomes the mask. The giving of gifts gives you joy, and then it's over. The receiving of gifts gives you joy, and then it's over. The family gatherings and the tradition and the nostalgia and the Christmas carols that some of y'all crazy people have been listening to for four months, it all gives you joy. And then it's over. And you wonder where it is and why it's not there. I'll conclude with these words from Charles Simeon, an old Anglican preacher in the 1800s. Simeon wrote these words. You have the quote there. He said, The caution given to them is applicable to Christians in every age. Speaking to them as the disciples. The caution given to them is applicable to Christians in every age. Their comforts and successes are doubtless a proper subject of joy and thankfulness. But it is in the final success only that can make them completely happy. And the only solid joy is that which arises from a well-founded expectation of happiness beyond the grave. That's it, guys. Your joy beyond the grave. That's where you find it. That's where you see the emotion of Jesus and his rejoicing is that you know that your name is written in heaven. Let's pray. And as I, before I pray with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're about done. I just, I want to say first, if you're here today, and, and maybe today you'd, you'd be honest and say, I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Can I just encourage you, would you just do me a solid? And would you consider talking to one of our pastors today about how you can know that your name is written in heaven? Would you consider Jesus? Would you at least consider Christ? If you're here and you, you have come to faith in Christ, just ask yourself the honest question, does my life, does my life right now, does it look to be a life of joy? Does it connect to the joy of Jesus? You know, moms, dads, where I often can kind of grab a hold of some joy 
is that my children can say that they know that their name is written in heaven. My wife could say that. There's a moment of joy for me in that. I got brothers and sisters in my life who'd say, my name is written in heaven. Maybe your grandparent and your grandchildren could say that. You can rejoice today with Jesus. But can you say that about you? That your name is written in heaven. If so, Jesus calls you to join him in rejoicing. Abide in your king. Let him rule your life. And let his joy be full in you. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.